Hey friends, and in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be talking to someone who believes that work is an essential part of life, but it doesn't have to suck, and is on a mission to return joy and purpose to the workplace. My name is Phil, I'm the host of this podcast, welcome to Vertical Playpen, and let's get into the conversation between myself and Mark Sarovic. How this is going to work is that I have a deck of cards that have questions on them, and I am going to uh, riffle through, and at some point, Mark, you just tell me to stop, and I don't know what the question is, you don't know what the question is, and we will do our best to answer the question, so we'll take it turns, and maybe we will learn something about each other in the process. Here we go. Ready? Go. Okay. Uh, I I guess stop. Yeah, go. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good one. Uh, what do you keep on your desk or in your workspace area that boosts your mood? I'm, I'm looking around. I've got a lot of things. Uh, my desk is a little cluttered, but <laughs> this is going to be embarrassing because I haven't gotten the one for 2022 yet, but I have a desk calendar from my favorite comic, Non Sequitur. And it's like the far side, if you're familiar with them, but very cheeky. And so I, I usually know kind of how stressed I am based on what day my desk calendar says. <laughs> <laughs> because whether or not you've turned it accurately yeah, for those yeah. next days. That's yeah. awesome. Right now I'm on December 17th. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. You're, you're taking a step back in time. I have one more. And I, I have a Dwight Schrute bobblehead. So a big fan of The Office. Did you big. did you ever enter the world or watch the UK version? I always have to ask that since I am from the UK. I've seen maybe uh, four or five episodes of the UK. I loved it, just uh, never had an opportunity. To, well, I, I never took the time to watch more, but I'm eager to watch it again. So on mine, um, I also am not the neatest, but I'm going to just... I'm going to show you this, a neon light um, with the word play in front of me as a reminder of playfulness. Um, so I like to bring that out occasionally uh, if I'm doing any play-based workshop to say that I've always got a reminder of play and it should be something mm. out front and center for people in their lives. And uh, is one of those things that I'm very fortunate that I get to do the work that I get to do. That kind of ties us in nicely to my next question, really, which is focused on yourself. What was your introduction to the world of adventure education and, and how do you, how do you think that shaped the person you are now and even maybe the work that you do now? I think back to my very first adventure experience, I was in maybe fifth grade and was a boy scout and we did the cope course, uh, which I think is challenging outdoor personal experience. And so it was my first ropes course as a participant and I still remember things from that. They had a 50 gallon drum they had painted to look like R2D2. And we had a Star Wars theme that summer. And they went around, and R2D2 had to do all of the elements with us. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun. And it was the first time I ever climbed anything, the first time I ever did a zip line. And it was pretty memorable. And after that, I got so excited that I tried to make my own zip line 
And I have a nice, uh, it's hard to see the scar here, uh, but I tried to make my own zip line at home with rope and I didn't have a pulley. Uh, so I took a chunk of wood and just kind of whittled a notch out of it and then put it on top of a rope and thought if I just hold on to both <laughs> hand sides of this chunk of wood, I'll slide down the rope on the zip line. And, and that did not work. It, it's so much like my little one will watch uh, Dora and Diego and Diego is always zip lining. And I'm just like, it's not that hard to draw a carabiner. Just draw a carabiner. <laughs> Anytime there's a TV show that me and my wife watch that will have some form of repelling or something like actiony mm-hmm. that someone will have a harness and stuff. I'm always like critiquing it. And they're like, oh, I have to stop doing this. She does not enjoy that. <laughs> I love that that memory of the R2-D2 like sticks in the brain. Cause I think that that is the, the experience part of the work that we get to do is that sometimes we forget maybe sometimes the impact that we may have on other people. What about that experience do you think you kept as you grew up? You know, I, I honestly don't know, but I've reflected back on that experience once I've been in the field for a number of years going, all right, how did they do that? What did they do trying to get into the nuts and bolts of it? And the other thing I remember about that summer is that the camp counselor had a broken leg because he didn't put his claws on when he climbed up. (laughs) So he had to facilitate all summer with a broken leg. And I'm just like the challenge course manager in me just cringes at that. Uh, But I think the, that, that was probably my first memory of adventure as a employee or as a person learning the, the, I think the thing that has shaped me the most was my internship when I was in grad school. So I went to graduate school for sports psychology and counseling and did this internship at a, at a leadership Institute that had a ropes course. And that ve- just challenged me to learn every single day. So I had to journal, like I had to write in my journal what I learned today, every single day. And my supervisor reviewed it. Like they loved creating new things and making new activities. And so we spent, we spent time just sitting there in the office, dreaming up what can we do with our, our things and how can we make these memories for folks? So, um, so I think back to kind of that experience is probably the one that shaped me the most, even though I'll never forget the R2D2. Wow. Another thing that we have in common, you said sports psychology. My uh, degree is in sports science with uh, sports psychology was the the part that I was focused on most. When it comes to like taking that information, taking the internship, and I think that that's awesome as well and and a great piece of advice in terms of taking information and noting all of the stuff that you're doing, actually journaling. I don't do that now and I kind of in my head thinking, wow, I probably should do that more often. How did this transform itself into an actual thought that this could be a career or something you maybe want to enter into full time? So when that program ended, I wasn't sure what to do next. And so I took a a year and did a gap year program. And this one was focused on uh, Christian discipleship. So I'm I'm a person of faith and you know, he studied the Bible and, and played in the outdoors and did all that. And while I was there, I had met some folks um, that were related to a organization down in Georgia where I live now. And so they had introduced that to me. They're like, hey, you, you do ropes course. This camp needs a ropes course director for the summer. So I came down kind of sight unseen and led that. And then that just turned into 
wow, I like this so much better than what I'm studying. <laughs> so I love sports psychology, but the I found myself much more excited about the team dynamics and the group dynamics and being able to create new activities and facilitate and train and help people. So it was just kind of that summer job of running the ropes course for a summer turned into being a uh, freelance, I like to say mercenary, <laughs> ropes course mercenary for a while. Um, but uh, yeah, I think think it was really that experience of saying, just running a course for a summer and then going, yeah, I, I like this much better than what I'm studying. Not that what I'm studying is bad. There was a lot of things we learned in that program that I still use today about how to listen, how to uh, use skills that are transferable, how to really understand and break down problems and issues. So, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that. I was actually recently having a conversation with uh, Lisa Hunt, another trainer, and we were talking about this idea of like how the progression of learning, the expectation on new practitioners, like the what should be the aim and the goal. And it feels like from just even your description of both the internship and the summer program and then um, the work you're doing, it's there's consistent learning. And you're, and there's no way to truly encapsulate what is the part for you in that journey that is the key part, other than other than there's a journey there, right? Like I, I even try to think myself is, is there a key part in my process that got me to a point where I feel like I understand the world a little bit more, or understand the industry a little bit more? But I think what you also suggested is that there was this gut feeling of this is this just feels better to do this than something else, but taking some of that other experience and then tying in it. I don't think your sports psychology is not being utilized. I think it's still yeah. utilized, yeah. but it's just like mm -hmm. layering on top of mm -hmm. all that experience um, that you have. So what is what is it that you do currently? You do it about your the mercenary work. What what is your current <laughs> what's your current role and what are you currently working on? So I uh, just started my own business in July of twenty what year is it now? So 2021. That's <laughs> yeah, hard to remember sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a whirlwind. Um, so I started my own business. It's called work play solutions and uh, it's really leveraging my skill set to whoever needs it. So it's a training and consulting business where I offer my experience training staff or developing training or teaching people who aren't in the experiential learning world how to use some of these tools. Um, one of my specialties is creating new activities and props and resources. And so I, I really like making these big epic scenarios where it's a two to three hour immersive experience. So it's not just, hey, here's a handful of portable activities or here's a couple of low ropes. I've made uh, portable escape rooms. I've made search and rescue scenarios. I've made these epic Rube Goldberg machine scenarios. And I'm offering kind of that to the world. I just want to, I want to help people and enjoy what I'm doing. And so that's, that's the business in a nutshell. One of the things that I've mentioned in this podcast several times is the notion of connections before content. 
Now, we're going to be running a virtual workshop on this topic on March the 10th, which is a Thursday, at 3.30 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, if you would like to bring a friend along for free, you can do so by entering a code at checkout. Now, I'm going to leave that code in the description of this podcast episode, and you can find all the details there. I hope to see you at that workshop and back to the episode. Myself and Ryan McCormick, who works at High Five, we for the we did this five years in a row at the High Five Symposium. We ran a workshop called Try Something New. And the whole framing of the workshop was that my, me and Ryan would facilitate 90 minutes on activities we had never tried before. And so it was two part. It was one, the idea that we want to give you something new, but also want to role model vulnerability as a facilitator. Because I do think that comfortability piece is probably the crutch that people lean on, especially if it's they've been doing it a while, because it's comfortable and they know what to do. You know, I've referred to the idea of a golden activity that you know really well, and I think that's super helpful for nerves and everything. But I, fi- I agree with challenging yourself to insert a couple of things that may be new to you. When you do that, when you add in a new activity, Mark, do you frame it in a different way? Do you front load the group that this is new or is you going in blind or you're just trying it and seeing how it works? <laughs> D- it depends on how effective it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. If it's, the, if it's a, a massive like success, you're like, oh, well planned. I knew this would happen. <laughs> I, an area where I get myself in trouble sometimes is, is when I try to attempt a half-baked idea that's not fully fleshed out with a real client uh, instead of with a group of, of safe people. Um, and, and I learned real quickly, like, oh, there was plenty of things I haven't figured out yet. And I kind of get that deer in headlights look. But if I've done the work to flesh the idea out, I don't mention it's brand new until after they've done it. Uh, something I've discovered is sometimes, even though everything in our industry is made up, <laughs> some folks don't like the feeling of being experimented on, even though the experiential learning cycle is all about active experimentation. So they want to know that what you're doing is going to work. And I've had a couple of moments where I tried something new and then I revealed it was new and the client actually didn't appreciate that. They're like, Oh, you know, go, go test out your stuff on somebody else. And, you know, just had, had to do some work, you know, after the program to, to fix that. I think that's the, that's a great point on knowing the right audience to do things with mm-hmm. and being the honesty around your vulnerabilities is appropriate. Some places I had a, I did a conversation with Mike Cardis who does a lot of corporate team development and he was talking about he for those he has to wear a suit and tie and you know immerse himself in a profession and and treat things differently than if he's doing a summer camp training and the thing i still i'm struck i continue to struggle with and i think it's it's good to voice is that balance between professionalism and the work Mm -hmm. that we do and the outward perception of that work is 
you know, I, I would love to us to get past the idea that as kumbaya circles kind of stuff in our field. <laughs> like, I, I'm happy for us to move beyond that. I don't want it to be stiff either. So it's that balance. And I have also done some new stuff and realized it was the wrong group at that moment mm. and said, yeah, maybe I shouldn't. But on the flip, I've done it. I did a, I, I did a school faculty training and I asked if it was okay. Like I said, like I, I've never done something. I would love to be able to try it with you. And it was probably the most successful thing I've done in a while. Mm. Just the energy, the activities we created, they felt ownership over it too. So they've since said, you remember that activity we created? So there is some, some positive to it, but I think mm. you're right. I think it's a picking the right time, right place kind of moments. Cause you certainly don't want to have to play catch up or apologize after the fact. Yeah. I think in that scenario, I would almost have something on deck if they said no. Uh, what I like about what you did there was you already had an assessment of the group. You've already been reading them out and then gave them that option. And, and I assume that, that if they said, no, no, actually we, we don't want you to try something new on us. You'd be like, okay, that's fine. I've got two other things that are ready in, in the bag to go. I'm, I'm guessing that's true. Yeah. And it, that's a, yeah, that's a, it's a good point to have like those backup plans to plans that don't work out well and, and know that you're not stuck yourself in. If they don't want to do it, then you're like, well, uh, I guess we're over early. <laughs> Why do I? Because that also probably wouldn't be a great way to, to uh, be in front of a client. Uh, this jumped into my head, an experience I had recently as well, where someone else had done an activity for the first time and that had worked really, really well. And they'd told me about it and I said, oh, I want to try that. So then I tried it with a client the next week and it was a huge flop. So the reason I bring that up is just to think that sometimes for some people that you work just on based on facilitation style, that's the mm. thing I think is, is exciting about the work that we do is we're going to be unique regardless of our intention or not, just because we are unique humans. So mm-hmm. I can pull off something that others can't and others can pull off stuff that I can't. And it's like, how did that flop so bad? They just told me it was awesome. I was just thinking as you said that, that there's, times when I've been handed an agenda that said, Hey, here's the activities. Here's the questions. Here's the, you know, what I'm trying to get out of each point. And that's for me, I find that actually it's very hard because the, the activity that they've chosen and the pattern of thinking that they've used presupposes that they've introduced it in a certain way and that they're seeing certain things. And those might not be the things that I see when I observe the same activity. And, and I found that those, those times can be somewhat challenging where I would much rather someone say, Hey, here's the group. Here's what they need. Here's the size of the room or the space that you have. Here's our tools. What can we do? And that's, that's, I think where I thrive. Our training team was talking about our level one trainings for ACCT. And we were talking about, there was a question in our exam that was talking about a sequence of activities. Mm-hmm. And then I just brought up like, I actually don't agree with the answer that we've written in the answer sheet anymore. I, I hmm. probably would have way back, but the idea of me doing name games, energizers, icebreakers, low spotting lows, highs, specialty or something like that kind of sequence. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily, I'm not going to do that every time anymore. I just think it's much more nuanced, but I, 
uh, that would be an irresponsible thing to tell a new practitioner. Yeah. You know, like how can you imagine being like early twenties and being told, <laughs> make it up. Yeah. <laughs> make All up right. what? I don't even have anything. <laughs> you haven't told me anything. Just you'll be fine. Just do yeah. something and something else. Figure it out. Read your group. You know, those kind of statements. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's actually something that's very hard for new trainers to pick up on. They want to share their wealth of experience, uh, especially when somebody becomes a level two facilitator and they're starting to, uh, you know, s- supervise and mentor other staff. They're wanting to give all this information. It's like, hold on, they need to learn one way first. Just <laughs> let them learn one way to do it. It doesn't mean that's the only way. It doesn't mean that's the right way, but let them learn one way. And once they've learned that way and they're competent and comfortable, then let's start expanding and showing them, all right, you, now that you know this and can do this, let's make that bigger and show you some possibilities. But I'm always having, I've found as I'm training other trainers, like, like settle down, settle down. Just like, don't tell them anymore because the, the other people with a lot of experience are, are nodding and they're excited. They're like, Oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to try that. And the, the, the person who's in the training for the first time is looking at you and is like, what's a spider web? <laughs> I think that's one of the things that got me excited about e-learning and LMS and kind of some of these blended training models. Uh, sorry, I used an acronym without defining it, learning management software or learning management system. And cause I noticed in my own trainings, I was spending 80% of my time just talking and 80% of my time giving vo- vocabulary and terms. And they were just getting that auditory. I'm like, they don't, they don't need that here. They don't need to hear me say that in front of them. They can look that up. It would be even better if they had a picture of it or saw the real thing and had those, you know, had that electronically where they can review it at another time. Um, I don't remember where I was going with that point. <laughs> That's okay, but that leads me onto a point. Uh, just talking about the like the the digital world, you know, mm-hmm. our world for the predominantly has been has been non digital for the for mm-hmm. most of the time. We've, we're in a period of time now where the digital is coming coming more into focus. Where do you see that change? Like, do you where do you see the benefits for entering into an e learning mindset? I think there's always going to be value in in in-person training and in-person experiences. So we should, we should absolutely be able to work remotely. We should absolutely be able to have zoom meetings. We should be able to have those experiences. And there's a cap at the effectiveness of, of some of that. So when you look at even your best virtual team building program, you're still sitting down or maybe you're standing, but you're, you're in your home space. You're not in a novel environment. Um, so, so it's, in my opinion, the in-person experience will always be superior. That doesn't mean it's the only tool we have as a facilitator, as a trainer, you are leveraging a bunch of different tools and facilitation is just like using Allen wrenches. You, you, find a hole and go, uh, I don't know if it's this one. Oh, oh, maybe it was the metric one. Oh, let me grab that one. Oh, that one turns, turns the nut wheel or bolt, whatever Allen wrenches <laughs> turn. But 
it, and I'm not hating on virtual experiences. I think they're great. I think they really help people in the pandemic. But when you compare the novelness, the sensory inputs to even a really good virtual experience, that's there. There's no scent. There's no tactile. There's you're you're not engaging the senses. It's you're not using a novel environment you're you're not getting out of your day-to-day norm so so i really think like i'm not preaching that we should all pretend like the technology doesn't exist we should use it i i love finding ways to incorporate technology and and having an ipad out there and and doing interesting things um yeah so so i guess i would say we don't put our heads in the sand and pretend it's not okay and there's a level at which the the virtual and the remote can only get you so far in certain environments. Kind of what we do is provide what's missing. So in many ways, if, if you are in an in-person office in the city, that's your daily grind, then adventure or a novel experience for you is getting in the outdoors, is hiking or climbing or camping or fishing or, or doing a zipline tour. If you are working remotely and your entire team is remote, then the novel experience is being in person <laughs> in the same room, you know? And if you're, if you are working by yourself, then the novel experience is being around other people in physical proximity and, and vice versa. So it's almost this idea of asking not what we should do as a facilitator or as an industry, but saying, what do people need? What is the gap that they have in terms of uh, human connection or their team and, and seek to fill that gap with what we have to offer? It made me think of two of my favorite team building experiences I ever participated in. One was driving race cars at Talladega. And <laughs> well, that sounds fun. It, it was oh, it was awesome, terrifying, and uh, I <laughs> I wear glasses, and my glasses got all fogged up inside the helmet, so I took them off. So I actually drove 175 miles an hour without glasses on, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> but my boss at the time had said, "We're doing this because." you're not scared of the zip line anymore. You don't remember what it's like to be afraid of it. You don't have uh, empathy for the folks who, who get up there and, and are scared. And so she wanted to put us in something that was completely new and foreign. So we would remember what it felt like to be a participant. And we, we processed through that for about three or four hours afterwards. It was amazing. And then the other was actually after a small conference that um, we put on down here in Georgia called the Georgia Facilitator Conference, or sorry, the Georgia Facilitator Summit. Uh, one of our coworkers had locked her keys out of her car. And so everyone just gathered around and we all tr- pretended to be MacGyver trying to figure out how to jimmy her car open for like two hours. And it was one of the best team bonding experiences I ever had. And it wasn't even a real program. It was just a bunch of people who were in community were around each other with a common purpose and a common goal. And, and, and it was, it wasn't fake. It was, it was real because she couldn't get in her car and a tow truck said it would be a couple hours before it got there. And, and just 
I think are, it's very limiting to think of experiences as just these cookie cutter things that we sometimes put out in front of people. So what advice would you, after your experience that you've had in your career, what, what advice would you give to someone just about to start? I think a couple things come to mind. One is, you know, be a lifelong learner. So you, you never arrive, you're always growing. And as long as you stay curious, you're going to be fine. So stay curious, keep learning. And later on in my career, a lot of the things I learned were from peripheral industries or things that where it, it wasn't necessarily experiential learning, but the skills were transferable. So I, uh, take improv classes and I love it. It's so much fun. And the, the overlap between improv performance and facilitation is fascinating. Like it's, there's a lot of similar skill sets about listening and making other people shine and, and being curious and, and all of those, those things there, there's overlap there. So I would say, you know, be curious, stay a lifelong learner Two is, is, put the time in, uh, it, take the opportunities you can get, even if it's not the perfect program, even if it's not the, the right program design, the, a friend of mine said, said to me once, you know, when you, when you work somebody else's program that you, somebody's paying you to determine what you want to do with your own folks. <laughs> You're like, Hey, I like what they do. I don't like that. So when, if, when I ever get to the point where I'm in charge, I'm going to do X differently. And I, I like what they did there. I'm going to incorporate that into my own um, thing. So I'd say take those opportunities and, and seek those out. And then the third thing I would say is just be okay with asking yourself, why did I do that? Uh, so I, I like to say a good facilitator always has a reason for what they did, whether it was choosing an activity to the way they asked a question, the way they framed something, they always have a reason. Doesn't mean that reason was right. Doesn't mean it was good, but there's always a reason. So being able to ask yourself, why did I do that? Or ask others as you're working with them, co-facilitate, Hey, I noticed you did that. Help me understand why you chose this then or why you did this instead of that, or just part of that understanding the reasons because oftentimes experienced facilitators don't even necessarily verbalize or in their mind know why they do it. They're just like, I, that was the right thing to do. Well, well why? Uh, <laughs> I just, it, I just knew it was okay. Well, let's, let's back up and start looking at what some of the observations are. So I think, facilitators can learn from our own experiential learning cycle and, and run ourselves through that and run our events and our programs through that. So I certainly wish out of those, I wish that I had taken that last one on more when I was learning of asking people why they did stuff. I think that that would have helped me skip some steps maybe in the learning. So I didn't have to figure out stuff on my own and then be like, Oh yeah, I remember like 10 years ago they did that. And that now makes loads of sense to me. I wish, <laughs> you know, I could have just asked in the moment. Cause sometimes we do see these facilitators do stuff that just feels like masterful. How do they, how do they get the group to do that? But we just don't ask. 
And what's, what's fun sometimes when you ask, they might say, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know whether that would work or not. I just kind of did it and it, it happened to work. And you're like, oh, they're, they, they, they're not really as confident as I thought. <laughs> they're people too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's such a so, valuable thing to note that, yes, we will continue to make mistakes no matter how much experience we have. And that's a, that's a humbling moment, humbling mindset to have in your brain. Uh, well, this has been really awesome, Mark. Thank you so much. The last thing I'm going to wrap with is uh, please check out Mark's podcast. And Mark, any other ways that people can find you mm-hmm. um, that you want to share? Yep. So the podcast is called Workplay Solutions Podcast. So <laughs> kind of that's the name of the business. I kind of feel like Spaceballs, Spaceballs, <laughs> Spaceballs, the t-shirt, Spaceballs, the lunchbox. So we've got Workplace Solutions, the, the podcast. Um, so there's the website. On the website, you can book uh, a session with me. The first session is always free because I like to discover, is there something that I can do for you? And I'm never going to charge you for that discovery. I'm on uh Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook are, are the three we're most. So Workplace Soul, that's W-O-R-K-P-L-A-Y-S-O-L uh, on those and find it. So I publish a blog on the website that I also post to social media. Um, but those, those are kind of the primary spots you can find us right now. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Phil. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playtime. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting Vertical Pasta, guys! <laughs>